The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let's do away with these question marks, shall we? Uh, open with me to the book of Romans in the New Testament. The book of Romans, where we start in chapter 1, it's on page 939 of your uh, Bible in the Purak. The book of Romans in the New Testament, just after the book of Acts. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Romans, the first and second chapter of the book of Romans. But we're also going to be in a few other places that I'll announce as we walk through. So uh, we'll be coming across them uh, throughout the sermon this morning. Uh, we are going to continue in our hard questions series. So this summer, uh, as we take a break, moving from Old Testament exposition to New Testament exposition beginning in the fall, we have the opportunity to, to take advantage of a, a season of transition when we're doing this sermon series on hard questions. And these are hard questions from two different perspectives. They are both from the perspective of the, the non-Christian person asking questions about the Christian faith, difficult questions, but they are also questions that may be asked by a Christian believer about their own faith convictions. So hard questions about the Christian faith, both by those uh, from an observer and non-confession uh, perspective, but also from those within. And I could uh, tell you that today's question could uh, fairly be asked by both perspectives this morning. So our question this morning uh, is, what about those who never hear the gospel? What about those people who never hear about Jesus Christ? So that is our hard question this morning. You may have heard it asked from several different perspectives. What about those who never hear the gospel? How will they stand before God? Does God grade people on a curve of the basis of their knowledge? Will God judge people in comparison to a moderated standard of morality? Or will God measure people by uh, the, the standards of their culture or by other people in their culture? If people are sincere and religious, does that gain them acceptance before God? What do people do who have no access to the gospel, that question, or other forms? That's our question. And I hope you can see why it's a hard question. And I'm going to make it even harder, I think, by taking that question from two directions uh, because I hope to cover some essential biblical truths on both ends of that question that create real difficulty. So uh, there is going to be both a a missionary and evangelistic impulse in answering this question, but I'm also going to forewarn you that we're going to cover some subjects that are, quite frankly, emotionally very difficult. So, nevertheless, that's why these are hard. But God's Word is given to us so that we would have light to wade into these difficult realities with truth. So that's what uh, we intend to do this morning by God's grace. So if you've got your Bible ready there in the book of Romans, let's pray together. And uh, we will hear God's word. Heavenly Father, we, we bow now in your presence, acknowledging that you are our God. And as we have confessed, we are your people. And Lord, we say this morning that we are a people much in need of you, in need of your wisdom and your truth, in need of your peace, and in need of your assurance. So we pray that you would come now in the power of your Holy Spirit to illuminate the reading proclamation and reception of your word that it might find as the seed of the word of God good soil in our hearts 
to spring forth fruit to the glory of your name, the edification and the sanctification of our lives, and the good of our neighbors as well. So now, Lord, come and bless the reading and hearing and preaching of your word, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to be reading from Romans 1 at verse 16. Romans 1, uh, 16 through verse 23. And then also Romans 2 and the first 16 verses of Romans 2. So two sections of Romans now for our scripture reading. Romans 1 at verse 16. Hear now the word of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We resume at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God brightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. 
Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God abides forever. So may he write its eternal truth on our hearts today. Let us keep our Bibles open as we hear it. We're asking a difficult question. What of those who never hear? What of those who never hear about the gospel? What of those who never have gospel preaching or hear about Jesus Christ? And when the question is asked, and it is normally asked in this way, there is usually the suggestion of uh, a, a hypothetical individual. I don't know why, but it's usually someone who lives on an island. What of the hypothetical islander who never hears about Jesus? What will God do with them? Or how will they stand before God? I don't know why they always tend to live on an island. Maybe because it's perhaps a more isolated place to live. But they've never had access to the gospel. They don't know the name of Jesus. They haven't heard of uh, blood atonement and bodily resurrection. They don't know how can they possibly save. What will become of them? And to that hypothetical scenario, there are two directions that a person goes. And those two directions form two different camps that we entitle one and inclusivist answer to the question of the hypothetical islander and secondly an exclusivist answer to the hypothetical islander so an inclusive answer to the difficult question and then an exclusive answer to the difficult question and it goes like this of that hypothetical innocent unknowing islander inclusivism is the belief that salvation is only through Jesus Christ of course but that there may be persons who are delivered from their sins and brought into saving grace without knowing it. They are redeemed by the person and work of Jesus Christ, even though they do not consciously know the person and work of Jesus Christ. Simply put, Jesus may save some people who have never heard of him, is the view of the inclusivist response to this difficult question. And to that point, inclusivists often cite Romans chapter 2 and the first 16 verses as a passage taken to imply that salvation is possible apart from God's special revelation of the scriptures. That they would say that the content of what we call general revelation, namely what Paul is talking about at Romans 1 verses 19 and 20. Look again at Romans 1, 19 and 20. Well, where the Apostle Paul says, Romans 1 at verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Suggesting that by looking at the world and seeing a creation, everybody, by general revelation, has access to the knowledge that there is a God who has made the world, and the God who has made the world is the God who has made you, and everybody knows it. It's what we call general revelation, and not only general revelation, but also the general revelation of God's moral law written on our hearts. That's in Romans 2 at verses 14 and 15, where the Apostle Paul at Romans 2 verse 14 is talking about the fact that even the Gentiles who are not given the law like the Israelites were, they have the law of God written on our hearts, written on their hearts by what we call a conscience. That God writes moral truth and moral governance upon the hearts of all people who know innately by their creation that some things are right and some things are wrong and everybody knows it. 
They come to that conclusion just as they look at the world and know that there is a creator, that that creator has created a morally ordered universe and has written that moral law upon our hearts. And the inclusivist answer to this question says that by way of this general revelation in looking at the world and in the knowledge of the law written on our hearts, it is, person, it is possible for a person to come into saving grace by way of this general revelation only. They look and see, and they know on their hearts. And actually, I remember being in college and learning about this, this doctrine. I'd never heard this before. Uh, this so-called thing called uh, the anonymous Christian. It comes from the 20th century by a Jesuit, a Catholic theologian named Karl Rahner, who says that it's possible for someone to be an anonymous Christian. And what he means by that is that it's possible for someone to be a Christian and not know it. To be a Christian, so he says, and not know the name of Jesus. This view is founded on the fact that they believe that Jesus is the only Savior, but those people cannot accept the fact that those who have not heard about Jesus could possibly be condemned for that lack of knowledge, and so they come to the conclusion that it's possible to be a Christian anonymously and not know it. This is the inclusivist answer to the question, what of those who never hear? The inclusivist can come to the conclusion it doesn't matter that they never hear, because God can deliver them by way of general revelation only. To which we should ask this question. Follow me here. If it doesn't matter that people don't hear, shouldn't we be working as hard as possible to make sure that people do not hear so that they would therefore be not accountable for knowledge that they reject since they never hear it? There seems to be very little motivation to tell people about Jesus, if it's possible that people can exist without the knowledge of Jesus and be totally fine at the end of the day. The motivation in the inclusivist answer seems to be stifled, in, in my thought anyway. And not only that, but I think the inclusivist answer reads what Paul is saying in Romans incorrectly. The inclusivist answer seems biblically unsatisfactory. So what does the Bible say? This second response, so-called exclusivism, in contrast to the inclusivist answer, exclusivism is the view that redemption is possible only through faith in Jesus Christ as he's revealed himself in the gospel. This is, of course, the predominant view of the Christian faith throughout church history and Bible-believing Christians all over the world still today. It's also what Paul is actually arguing in Romans. So although there are people who try to use Romans 1 and 2 to highlight the importance of general revelation, and that is true, what Paul is actually arguing here is that he is saying that God's revelation in nature, what you can see just by looking at the world and what you can discern just by the moral conscience of moral government upon your heart, is sufficient only to bring you to the realization that you are a sinner. It can't actually save you. God's general revelation in nature is sufficient only to condemn us, not to save us. So, for example, in chapter 1, if we take the hypothetical man on the island, Romans 1.21 says that he knows God. Everybody knows God. That's why we say that there is actually no such thing as an atheist. They don't exist. Because they are, in the language of verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, suppressing the truth that they know. They know the truth. They just don't like it. They know it's true. They just refuse to acknowledge 
that it's true, and so they suppress. And you hear the illustration from me all the time. It's like trying to drown a large beach ball. You try to push it under the water, you try to suppress it, and it pops right back up every single time because you can't actually deny real reality that God exists. So everybody knows God, Paul says in Romans 1.21, though they suppress that truth, verse 18, they suppress what is perceptible in nature, and as a result, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says that everybody, including our hypothetical islander, is, verse 20, without excuse. No one has an excuse before God to say, I didn't know. Because God has made creation such that everybody knows. They may try to deny it in suppression, but everybody knows. Humans, therefore, are not guilty before God because they haven't heard the gospel. They're guilty because they haven't honored the creator. They see the world and know that God exists and then choose to reject rather than embrace. In other words, it is not because of the absence of their faith that they're guilty, but because of the presence of their rebellion in not honoring their creator. So will God condemn the innocent Islander who has never heard the name of Jesus Christ? The answer is that there is no such thing as an innocent Islander. No one is innocent. No one is morally neutral. No one stands before God innocent because by general revelation, everybody knows. So the question is based on a false presumption. There are no morally neutral people. Paul's argument is that all humanity has fallen in Adam. And when Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father before me. There's not a footnote to give exception to anybody. No one comes to the Father, Jesus says, means not anyone. The necessity of hearing the gospel for salvation is very clear if you want to flip forward into Romans chapter 10 as Paul builds his gospel case throughout the book of Romans to say, here is the reality about all humanity, which is why it is necessary that people hear about Jesus Christ, which is why it's necessary that people hear the good news of the gospel. So if you're at Romans 10, look at verse 13. Romans 10 at verse 13, Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in verse 14, he says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, verse 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Whoever a person is, the only way to Jesus Christ is by hearing about Jesus Christ. So follow what Paul is saying here. The chain of life, Paul is a brilliant thinker by divine inspiration, of course, but the logic is very straightforward in Paul's mind. The only way to be saved is to call upon the name of Jesus. And the only way to call upon the name of Jesus is to believe the gospel. And the only way to believe the gospel is to hear the gospel. And the only way to hear the gospel is to have the gospel proclaimed to you. 
the declaration of the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that is the substance of the gospel message that has to go forth for people to believe, to be saved. That's what Paul is saying. So the answer to the question, what about those who have not heard, is this. They need to hear. They need to hear. Friends, this is why you find Christian churches concerned about the cause of missions, right? Missions is the sending of Christian servants into the lands where Jesus is not known in order that he would be known. Now, pause for a minute and think about this reality that we tend to, about, to think about missions as only a foreign reality. The sending of missionaries to other places, and that's good and true and right. But you know that Jesus needs your witness in your neighborhood and in your civic organization and in your workplace and on your sports teams and kids in your classroom. Jesus needs a witness there too because people in those places don't know either. And some of us are absolutely shocked with that realization that, that there are people living, working, and hanging out around you who are 100% ignorant about the name of Jesus because they've never heard. They didn't even grow up with any concept of cultural Christianity. It's just not there. They don't know. And how will they know? But for someone saying. Sometimes you may have heard that phrase, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That's the only way to preach the gospel, with words. That's like saying, feed the hungry at all time, and if necessary, use food. The gospel is words. The gospel is declaration. The gospel is the announcement of Jesus Christ. The sending of the name of Jesus where he is not known. So local missions, to be sure, neighborhood, uh, uh, evangelism, the relation of Jesus Christ to our friends. But also, yes, of course, foreign missions. And our own denomination, EPC World Outreach, helps us with, that, with this because it distinguishes some categories that you and I need to know as we interact with these questions. Because we use these terms and we hear these vocabularies and we want to make sure we understand because there is someone who is unreached by the gospel, an unreached person. An unreached person is a person who has little chance of hearing the gospel because of political, cultural, or geographical barriers. And there are centers that study populations. An unreached people group has an evangelical population of less than 2% of their citizenship and a Christian-friendly population of less than 5%, according to the Joshua Project. So with so few Christian believers present among them, unreached people are those who have little to no access to the gospel. But another kind of person is what we would call an unevangelized person. An unevangelized person is someone who has not heard the gospel, but they live in places where they have access to the gospel and Bibles that they can read in their language. They may have friends and family and coworkers and sports teams members who are Christians, and they may even live within walking distance of a Bible-believing Christian church, yet they don't know because they are unreached, because they are unevangelized. So unreached and unevangelized people are both lost, but not all lost people are unreached or unevangelized. So how many people are we talking about? The EPC helps us again with this. How many people are unreached in the world, meaning they have zero access? Of the 7.8 billion people in the world, the Joshua Project tells us 
that three billion people in the world have zero access to anything Christian. That's just under 40% of the entire global population. Zero witness of the name of Jesus where they live. Three billion people woke up today in spiritual darkness, blind to the glory and love of Jesus, and cut off from worshiping the one true God because they don't know. And only 3% of all Christian missionaries and only 1% of all Christian missionary dollars are targeting those unreached peoples. But in the EPC, uh, our missions agency have said that's our goal, the 3 billion. The 3 billion people who have never heard, who, who will perhaps live and die and never even hear the name of Jesus. It gives us cause to care about the great commission of Jesus going out in the world by focusing on those with the least access to care and support missions so that those who have never heard the name of Jesus will have cause to rejoice. Missions is the answer to the question, what of those who have never heard? But that's just the first part of the way we answer this question. We're going to take a significant pivot here. What about other kinds of people? What about the death of a child? Miscarriage, stillborn, death in infancy. What of those with significant and severely mentally disabled children and adults? What of these? You see why these are hard questions? What is God's purpose in the deaths of those who are mentally incapable of understanding the gospel, whether infants or adults? Let us acknowledge that God has wrapped this matter in a shroud of mystery that we should approach very tenderly. And yet, the Bible does speak here. And so when the Bible speaks, we shouldn't speculate with our own opinions, but look to where God has shown the light of his revelation. So you may have heard or were raised in a tradition that uses this phrase, the age of accountability, that suggests that there is a threshold of age that a child reaches that so long as they are beneath that threshold of age, God holds them not accountable. I tried to do a search to figure out, is there an authoritative age of accountability? The answer is no. Some people say as young as eight. Some people say as old as 13. To all those things, I say the Bible never uses this phrase, age of accountability. So what does the Bible say to help us think through this most difficult subject? Uh, turn back to the left, but stay in the New Testament with me. Go to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1 in the New Testament, uh, we find this truth. Luke chapter 1, specifically at uh, verses uh, 41 through 44. This is the scene of Mary visiting her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John, who we'll later know as John the Baptist, and Mary, who is, of course, uh, going to give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn this truth from Luke chapter 1, that God can save infants even from the womb. Look at Luke 1, uh, verse 41, we read, Luke 1, 41, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, that's John, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary goes to Elizabeth 
The Annunciation is given, and John leaps in Elizabeth's womb in verse 44. Now listen, there's much about this that we don't know, but there are legitimate conclusions that we can make, specifically as you look back to Luke 1 and verse 15, which speaks to the fact, Luke 1, 15, where the birth of John was given, Pick up at verse 13. Luke 1, 13 says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Verse 14, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And look at this. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. That the unborn child... John was already filled with the Holy Spirit, as Luke 1.15 promised, that God caused John to rejoice in Christ in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth. What we should say from this is that we know that God is able to save those with underdeveloped or impaired mental capacities, even those not yet born, can be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb of their mothers. Secondly, moving into the Old Testament, come with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. It's on page 152 in the, the Old Testament there in your pew Bible. We learn from Luke 1 that God is able to save infants even from the womb, filling them with the Holy Spirit, giving them the seed of regeneration prenatally. But from Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9, we remember this important truth of God's covenant. That God's mercy is to a thousand generations. From Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9, pick up verse 6. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be the people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. This teaches us to have hope in God's covenant mercy, to build our hope not upon well wishes, but upon the assurance of God's covenant. As Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, steadfast love to a thousand generations. Loved ones, Christian believers, that means that your God is faithful, not just to you, but to your children's children. To a thousand generations of your family is the mercy of God's covenant grace. And as Christian believers, we stake our hope upon God's faithfulness primarily. One final example that we could find, come with me into 2 Samuel. It's on page 263. 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12 on page 263. We are learning that God can save infants from the womb, as we saw with John the Baptist, that God's mercy is to a thousand generations from Deuteronomy 7. And here now we have 
the, the preeminent example of the very thing that we're addressing. An example in the King David. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we'll pick up at verse 19. David's infant son is going to perish. 2 Samuel 12 and verse 19 says, But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. But he will not return to me. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Which tells us, loved ones, of the ability of the people of God to entrust their children to the safekeeping of the Lord until the day comes when they will see them again. Do you see? Into the hands of a faithful God, as Psalm 103 says, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children to those who keep His covenant. This is why in our tradition as Presbyterians, our confession of faith says this, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how He pleases so also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. That means that God calls these dear ones to eternal life by placing the seed of regeneration into their souls in his own sovereign purposes. This is accounting for these very tender situations and extending the arm of God's mercy to Christian parents bereaved of their young ones or those parents who are perhaps perpetually anxious about their children with restricted mental capacities, to those parents, we can affirm this biblical truth that your child has a place in the Father's house where you will rejoice to dwell there with them for all eternity. Because the Bible says so. Not merely because we wish it to be true. These are hard questions, of course they are. But we are helped with biblical truth. The gospel says to those who have not heard, they need to hear. And it also extends the hope of the covenant to those without the capacity to hear. But God's mercy knows no bounds. Friends, what a wonderful thing it is to have a God who is faithful to a thousand generations, who motivates us, perhaps, to begin a new family's story of being a Christian family who have never heard. May he give us grace in this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace and kindness. And we pray now that you would bless and keep us in this truth and settle our hearts 
and help us to know your truth and help us there to rest and abide for all eternity. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.